name's John Stobart. And I'm Alan Gregory. And we are Pennywise Dreadful. So this is the podcast extension to our peer-reviewed online journal enterprise, uh, Pennywise Dreadful, the Journal of Stephen King Studies. We will, over the next few months, years, decades... We're going through Stephen King's extensive back catalogue, reviewing various books, short stories, films, TV series. Bad and the good. Yeah, bad and the good. Today we are joined by... Our resident expert on blood, Dr Stephen Curtis. Hello. Hey Steve, how are you today? I, I am bloody great. So we'll begin the, the King reread, or the Great King reread, with, with Carrie. Yeah. I want to start, though, with some general podcast information. Yes. As this is a scholastic venture, there will be spoilers all the time. Every episode will contain many, many spoilers. So if you haven't read the book that we're talking about this month, then Do I so. suggest you pause and go off and read it and then come back. Stephen King writes horror fiction and frequently explores the dark side of human nature. And at times during this podcast, we will be discussing events that may be disturbing or even traumatising to some people. So, Alan, tell me, what did you think about Carrie for your reread? I must admit, this, this is, I think this is the fourth time I've read Carrie. And on previous reads, I've, I've not seen very much in it. I've always seen it as a very sort of flimsy piece that you can almost throw away. I and mean, I sort of see The Shining as the beginning of... Or I've always always previously seen uh, The Shining as the the origin of King's birth as a as a horror writer but there's lots there's so much in it it makes a complete difference reading it with your scholarly academic head on to yeah. reading it as a stephen king fan yeah I, I i decided that right at the beginning of rereading carrie this time yeah and i think that particularly because i think the first time i read carrie i'd only read two other stephen king novels i think it makes a difference as well uh, as well as the whole scholastic hat being on. I think it also makes a difference being aware of a broader spectrum of King's other fiction. Now I'm aware we're not going to talk about King's broad spectrum of fiction right now because we're only at the beginning of our King yeah. journey, but we can't help but notice what's going to come. Yeah, that there are there are gestures towards figures that will sort of appear later in King's body of, of work. And themes. Yeah. Uh, themes and motifs. I mean, uh, so... And particularly, actually, what was interesting was that I noticed there's an essay, Contemporary Gothic, Why We Need It, by Stephen Broom. So he's a, he's a guy whose work I'm particularly familiar with. But I'm wondering whether what particularly struck me was that there are motifs that are particularly prominent in King's early fiction. So Stephen talks a lot in this essay. The majority of his, his, his sort of scholastic... Uh, interrogation of King was centred on, on The Shining. But he talks about Danny Torrance as sort of gravitating towards the uh, more abusive parent. And that's uh, something that happens in Salem's Lot. So he's recurrent from Salem's Lot in terms of Susan Norton sort of castigating her mother, even though she's the sort of more stand-up parent, stand-up supportive parent, even if it's not in a very sort of emotionally attached way. And it definitely happens it, it, in Carrie. It manifests a hell of a lot in Carrie. I mean, because the, there's a sense with Carrie that there are various gestures towards, I, I hate her, I hate her. But you also get the sense that she loves her mother more than anybody else because she's all she's got. It just struck me that that seems to be something that King investigates a lot. 
in his early fiction particularly. And I'm sure that's something we're going to return to again and again as we go through. Yeah, yeah. See? So, blood in Carrie. Well, there's a lot of it. Uh, it starts with blood, blood continues and it ends with blood. But I was struck particularly by the way in which King has a very Old Testament sacrificial notion of blood running throughout the novella. Starting off with the ideas of blood as being a cleansing but also staining liquid or fluid, um, which of course we can see in Margaret White's reaction to Carrie's beginning of menstruation, the fact that she hasn't warned her at all, it will happen. And also from the way in which blood is used as a very potent visual symbol throughout. Right, what was struck me about uh, King's use of blood is it's not just human blood that he just decides to employ, it's the pig's blood is a very sort of central motif of, of the text. There's several levels we can discuss that on. On one level it's to do with the fact that uh, if you look at the history of sacrifice there is a kind of idea in anthropological circles of a replacement from an original human blood sacrifice through to animal and then the animal sacrifice is replaced by symbolic sacrifice. Um, so rituals that evoke it but don't actually involve blood such as Eucharist with the, the wine representing the blood. And so it gives us a kind of primeval earlier notion of a kind of sacrifice of an animal. There's also a very practical use of pig's blood because it doesn't coagulate so it remains liquid. Obviously for the practical purposes here it's frozen and is then rethawed and pig's blood will do that in a way that human blood wouldn't. But also there's a symbolic association of Carrie with a dumb animal. Yeah. Um, quite often she's described as being a patient ox, bovinely, she's described as an ape at another point. Uh, she has the eyes of a, of a hog in a slaughter pen. So it dehumanises Carrie um, by association. No, Billy says, doesn't he, a pig... Pig's blood for a pig. Yeah, yeah it's a referring which, you know, for me is kind of reminiscent of the Lord of the Flies and the kill the pig, cut its throat, that kind of yeah. powerful, primeval notion of blood and the blood of a pig. There's also pigs are really closely related to humans in, in terms of anatomy. The Roman surgeon Galen used pigs for anatomies and much of his kind of association of, and readings of the human body were extrapolated from the bodies of pigs. Uh, you can use pigs' hearts. Yeah. Um, pigs' organs. So it's a really kind of, they're almost human but not quite. They're kind of domesticated but other. Carrie is a domestic animal because she's yeah. compared to lambs, a scapegoat, which is a very loaded term. Yeah. Pigs and cow and lambs and cows. So it's this idea of kind of domestic of farming that seems to be interesting to me in that notion. It also links to René Girard's hugely influential ideas about sacrifice and the way in which blood has to be consumed. If there's any blood left over from a sacrifice, it becomes impure and pollutes. And in here, that the blood that's left over, the blood that remains, obviously, is what we see in the, the, at the fatal prom. Can I ask about the menstruation? Because the novel begins and ends with mm. menstruation. What's what's going on there? Well, menstruation, historically, is often used as a way of distinguishing and belittling women. Or the female, in that usually from, certainly from medieval accounts onwards, blood is seen as being valorous when it's shed by men, because it's usually happening in warfare, and so is a, a mark of achievement, whereas women bleed without control, and so it's seen as being something bad. It's always slightly odd to me, because actually, during early modern times, people were going to be bled because there was a notion they had too much blood inside them. So actually, if you take to a logical extreme, women's bodies were better because they did it naturally rather than into women. But that, none of the only modern writers think of that. But there is a kind of weird um, cultural shaming of bleeding, which we can see 
this week, um, yesterday, it was hitting all the major newspapers, the interesting character of Ryan Williams, who's a Meninist, who uh, with the hashtag self-control and how disburdened by the tampon tax in the, in England. Currently, um, tampons incur a, a VAT, value-added tax on them, even though they should be seen as an essential human right. And this um, individual's come to popular, infamous idea because he thinks that it's a, a voluntary thing and that women should be able to stop themselves from bleeding and so there shouldn't be a, a notion. So there's the, even now, and this is like, I think he's 19, he is 19 there's an yeah. association that there's something bad and shameful, even though obviously we now know scientifically a lot more about what's happening with this. So it is even outside the anthropological notions of there being a, a dirtiness, a kind of an abject in the Christavian sense to menstruation. Socially and culturally, there are people who still have this notion, which goes against, obviously, all of the advertisements for sanitary products, which are always about the liberating things you can do, almost as if when you have your period, it's the perfect time to go roller skating. Or in one really famous, I think, Swedish Tampax printed commercial where there's a woman who's bathing with sharks in her period to show how effective the absorbency of these, this material is, which, you know... Is, wonderfully kingian in, in many ways yeah. i did want to ask in terms of the menstruation that so at the beginning of the novel you've got all of the, the girls in the, in the in the shower and they sort of one by one get out of the shower i think it's very interesting that in some respects carrie's period should be seen or could have been seen as like a pathway to her sort of joining the uh adult female collective and sort of you know uh, and being seen as one of her peers but she even from the sense that she is the last one left in the shower hmm. that sort of foregrounds her isolation within the social circle of of you in high school yeah i think that really works really clearly that she's she's the last to enter puberty in a weird kind of way and that because culturally and through nurture she's been held back by her mother's potentially progressive way of bringing her up actually that's been been affected physically in her puberty itself being held back and the fact that she's the last one in so we have that idea of the shared sacrifice the ritual where blood is shed correct everyone else let leaves and she's left and the shower is then kind of polluted by her and so they they react to that by all throwing products at her even the the so-called heroic sue snell so it kind of becomes she's rather than being a way of joining she's separated through that that moment uh, and that's echoed really interestingly through the reaction of mr jardine who um is described as, as being euphoric when she has her first period yeah and shouting downstairs to her mother that she's joined kind of womanhood yeah. so she can't imagine why carrie is, is reacting in this way and it becomes this kind of weird epiphany that she suddenly realizes oh this is her first period she doesn't know yeah. what it is yeah i was also struck by that because there's this whole King sort of describes the way that Desjardins is, is dressed and the fact that Carrie leaves a bloody handprint on her white, pristine white sh- uh, gym shorts. So that, that sort of adds to the sort of air of revulsion. That's, that that's echoed in De Palma's 1976 film uh, when the headmaster sees Carrie's handprint on Mr Jardin's thing and he physically flinches, he makes a, a grimace and flinches away from seeing the handprint. I think it's interesting because in, in the novel, it's just he has an air of discomfort about the entire thing once he realises it's not about seeing a certain... In De Palma's case, he was given a visual cue, yeah. whereas you just get an air of Morton's discomfort throughout the entire sequence. There's also a really clear kind of social prescription about talking about menstruation. Uh, the boy who's waiting outside the office, who's asked, what's he looking at? And he says, blood. Which yeah. is quite clear what he's seeing. 
is then given detention for making it clear because you don't talk about you know the first rule of periods is you don't talk about periods um and here he he makes that clear he says it's blood and that completely subverts the way it should be it should be a hidden thing and so he gets punished for it and so that idea of blood being something you don't see then continues and is repressed and repressed as all things we know as good freudians that are repressed will, will, will spring forth and so we then have the pig's blood at the end is that ultimate kind of return of the repressed blood of the menstrual cycle is that what carries to some extent yes what about sue snell's menstruation at the end her miscarriage stroke getting her period yeah it becomes a weird kind of blurring between a miscarriage and it's described as menstrual blood in it but obviously miscarriage with the, the obvious pun on the on the name comes in but also it becomes a kind of a hark back to these ideas of social rituals and cleansing in that her period is held over until the bloodletting of the black prom happens and then her body returns to normal because she's gone through the penance of the initial shaming, joining in the shaming of Carrie at the start. So in a sense you can read that as being a moment in which she re-enters normal bodily womanhood and so that's kind of her redemptive arc even though that becomes a really problematic way of reading it if we read it as a miscarriage. Um, I know it can be read that that is a tragic moment because that was Tommy's child and that would be his sense of redemption. And that's one way you can read it. But there is, in, in terms of basic notions of anthropological ideas of blood and sacrifice, it's her return into. It strikes me as being analogous to ideas where in medieval society women weren't allowed to go back into the church straight after childbirth. They had to go through a period of post-parturition until they were clean again. So this kind of, the whole novella works out as a kind of cultural cleansing in its most aggressive sense. And then there's some sort of sense of normality that returns afterwards, but obviously the town is in ruins. One of the things I found interesting reading the book is Billy's reaction to the blood, when he's putting the blood up on the top and he doesn't mind if that was Chris. And so his relationship with the blood, he's the person spilling the blood in the first place of the pig, He's the person placing the blood. He is responsible for the blood. Is that a masculine... Uh, as, as, a, as a masculine scholar, I, I'll take this one. Uh, I, I find Billy a very odd character in terms of his, his masculinity. I think he is sort of meant to be read as, as, as almost like... In the same way you could read Carrie as, as Sue Snell's Dark Half, you could read Chris Harginson as Sue Snell's Dark Half. Definitely read, I definitely read sort of Billy as a, as a darker sort of configuration of, of Tommy, the Dark Prince, to, to so do you, uh, is Tommy's it, Prince Charming. Is it significant <coughs> then that it's Billy putting the pig's blood up there that kills Tommy? Because it's the bucket that Billy places. Yeah, yeah, no, there is a definitely sort of killing one's lighter half to make oneself whole, almost, I guess. But even then, I mean, I wouldn't say that what I find interesting is Billy has more agency than Tommy, but he doesn't have... There's still an element in both cases where Chris removes agency from Billy and, and Sue removes agency from, from Tommy in the sense that at one point Billy says that he was going to allow Chris to, to, to pull the rope, right? Yep. So, you know, when they go to Henty's farm to slaughter the pigs, he talks about how he would do anything for her, even going as far as murder. Yeah. So there's even a sense that even though he sort of reclaims a certain element of masculine agency by pulling the rope and by killing the, the lighter half of his own masculine subjectivity in Tommy, you get the sense that he's only there because 
Chris has willed it. Basically, everything that, that happens in Carrie is a product of Chris's anger towards Carrie White. And her, her desire to destroy Carrie completely. Yeah. The entire novel hinges on that hatred. Um, one of the things that I picked up in the novel is the use of the butcher's knife, which I've read as being the same butcher's knife that starts Carrie's life and ends Carrie's life. Is that linking with the blood and the sacrifice that you've already talked about? Yeah, there's a definite, for one of the, the, the obvious part, there's a cycle happening within the, within the book in terms of blood. And the, the idea of, because uh, the idea of sacrifice is it's a moment that always recreates a previous moment, but is a moment of its own. So it's a, it's a kind of a, a step outside of normal time of chrono- chronological time into what's known as chaotic time, this kind of idea of the kind of recurrence of a moment which is always unique, but the same moment again. And so you kind of have that at the beginning and end of Carrie's life, that this butcher's knife is used when the um, the cops who are called, when they when they hear the screaming of, of her birth, of her, of, of her mother, when at birth, they find lots of blood around a butcher's knife and think there's been an assault, and actually it's the butcher's knife is being used to cut the umbilical cord. That then knife, the same knife we invite to read is used to stab her at the end. And so you get this kind of her life being born into blood and then ended in blood, which is very much Margaret White's fascination with blood as punishment, which is a, you know, a Genesis notion that Adam is made from clay, Eve is made from a bone, blood is only born from sin. And the first, but the first man born into blood is Cain. Okay. Yeah. who then commits murder and sheds blood. But I think there's definitely an idea within the novella as this cycle of being born into blood. Carrie is born into blood at, at birth, is made into into very visible and social bloodshed, is, enters womanhood with her, her first period in the shower, and then is made into the kind of revenge-seeking, telekinetic or psychokinetic horror figure at the prom through visible bloodshed. So that idea of those passages of her life are definitely illustrated through very visible blood. Um, to follow on from that with Margaret White, yeah. what do you see as, as religious um, themes in this book in particular? I mean, we, we can see as we go through that this is going to crop up again and again. Margaret White is a very, very strict religious person with very extreme beliefs. Yeah, I mean, they're very Old Testament. She's very Old Testament, isn't she? Yeah. There's also the sense that, if I've got this right, I, I kind of got the sense that, that even her sort of, her and Ralph got removed or sort of kicked out of their religious community. So it's almost like even her, even within a recognised religious community, her her beliefs are too extreme. Yeah, I, I read it almost as she starts her own brand of religion. Yeah. She's that goes it further. Yeah, she's the preacher and Carrie is her only parishioner. Yeah, yeah, there is that sense, actually, isn't there? Do we then see that as religion being, religion taking us out of society? Do you think King maybe is commenting on the role of religion in 70s America? It's not just in the 70s, I think. It's another thing that I think we'll keep coming back to particularly when you look at something like revival religion is something that i saw an interview that bill maher gave about donald trump and his his election campaign and he was asked if he would ever run for office because of you know he has similar number of twitter followers to donald trump and the sort of utilization of social media means that and what he said was it's not possible for him to run for office because he is an atheist so there's a sense that you know america as a country are so invested in religion as an as an idea, regardless of your your denomination. Collectively, as as a sort of territorial body, America is 
is obsessed with religion. And so I don't think it's a, it's a spectre that will ever be removed from King's fiction. I think he would lose something if that, uh, if he was to try and avoid it. I think his fiction would uh, uh, would be uh, diluted. So do you think it's a fundamental part of the America, the small town America that he that is uh, sort of recurrent in his in his fiction? So do you think then Margaret White as a character is an antagonistic character? I read her in no way positively. I can see how she would come about as a character, but I cannot see her as any positive influence throughout the novel um, as having any positivity. I don't either, but at the same time I would argue that it's almost like she doesn't make that decision consciously. It's almost like religion relieves her of the burden of autonomy. Anything that she does, she does because of the sort of religious discourse which she is imprisoned by. So, unless you argue that the fact she keeps Carrie. Yeah, because there is a passage in the book where she's, when at the end, where she's telling Carrie she should have got rid of her right at the beginning. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. But she was selfish. I wanted to keep that. The fact that Carrie is the embodiment of her only act of rebellion against her religious beliefs is telling, I think. Because the rest of her life is framed by her sort of religion. And so, so I don't view her as a positive figure, but at the same time, I don't hate her. Or I don't, don't view her as negatively as I, I, I could because of her lack of autonomy. So that suggests that she's quite a problematic figure. And I think that a lot of the characters in the book are quite problematic. You can't pin them down to being a good guy or a bad guy. There's no hero I don't think is, in this novel. I would say there is there is a villain. I think that, that uh, when you say you can't pin them down, the one exception to that is Chris Harkins. Yeah. Um, because she she is pure villainous. There's nothing nice about you know. There's nothing positive to say about Chris Harkinson. But I think that's the role she she plays. Everybody else is uh, is ambiguous. Uh, but there is definitely no hero. I think some people might say that Tommy Ross is a heroic figure. Sort of in terms of you know the number of critical thinkers who have thought of of Carrie as a sort of fairy tale. And so with Tommy sort of being, embodying the sort of Prince Charming ideal. But he's too, for want of a better phrase, wet for me yeah. to embody that properly. He has no agency of his own. Sue Snell kind of, everything he does, he does because Sue Snell's pulling his strings. Which is exactly what Chris is doing with Billy Nolan. Yeah, although Billy Nolan has a more autonomy, I think, than than Tommy Ross does. Mm -hmm. I think that because there is an element, when he's out driving or when they're out cruising before they go to the, the black prom, Billy's sort of thinking in his head about how long Chris is going to last. So there is a sort of, King does gesture towards the possibility that Billy could act independently of Chris. Yeah. That is not an opportunity that is extended to Tommy Ross. Everything that happens to Tommy happens because Sue has told him to do it. It, it's the thing is that or that lack of autonomy extends to the fact that his story is told or retold in the passages from My Name Is Sue Snell. Yeah, which brings us neatly, I think, onto point of view. I, I quite like the narrative structure of this novel. It's a confusing narrative structure for a confusing narrative. The multiple points of view: the fact that you get newspaper clippings, the fact that you get the Sue Snell's book, the fact, fact you get doctor's reports and psychologists and psychiatric reports doesn't give any one voice 
chance to emerge apart from Sue Snell, mm. who is an unreliable narrator. And the thing is, as well, I, I find it interesting that the, the sort of the medical and scientific explorations of the of the Carrie White case do not offer a level of clinical detachment mm. that I would associate with medical or scientific discourse. And I think that that is deliberate. I think that that extra layer of, of problematization that King offers the reader is very interesting. Yeah, um, and I want to bring up a negative because it's... We should, King's, no, it's not a perfect text. You it's King's first first published yeah. novel. Yeah. Um, we do know that he released... He'd written three beforehand, hadn't he? He'd written Rage and Blaze and The Long Walk before yes. he published Carrie. But I was struck by some of the absolutely dire things that King said, such as how um, in the shower scene at the beginning, the girls are described as having light and eager morning sweat. What on earth? <laughs> there is almost a sense of... I mean, it's a, it's a criticism level that came quite a lot, but some of his, particularly when he's writing about sex, yeah, he writes like a teenage boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that comes across in sequences like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and another one perfectly epitomises that he describes the teacher as their slim, non-breasted gym teacher. And that's that's not an adult way particularly. You just sort of see him at his writer going, hee 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 when Carrie's skirt rips in the book, he describes that as uh, the sound of a huge wind breakage, which is a really posh way to say fart. You can just... <laughs> I, I sort of imagine, like, Beavis and Butthead with monocles. <laughs> that sort yeah, of posh. It, it is. But that, that does also bring us on to King's depiction of women, which is a question raised by Neil McRobert. Neil's been in touch with us. Uh... Asking, can King write women? This is something King's had a lot of criticism over the years for. And I'm going to take the position that, you know what, he doesn't do such a bad job, to be honest. Yeah, it's not a woman. It's patchy. It is patchy. And trying to put yourself into a 16-year-old head of somebody of a different gender is going to be difficult for anybody, never mind the writer just at the beginning of the career. Yeah, I think that what I will say about King is that I give him slightly more credit than some critics do. I think he can write women, but a lot of his female characters... He can write various versions of, or a number of configurations of stock character. So, like, his depiction of Margaret White, for example, I see as identical, particularly in terms of the way he uh, describes her physicality, as the way he describes Annie Wilkes in, in Misery. But he's constructed in his head a number of silhouettes that he can put on paper and then flesh out later. Yeah. So he can write women, but his repertoire is limited. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that all of his women are great. When we come on to some later novels, there are one or two that I'm just going to go, this is terrible, King cannot write women right now. I think I'd give him more credit that his limited repertoire bites him in the arse. I think we've got to remember that this particular novel was based on two teenage girls that he knew. Um, but it, and I quote, um, she was a very peculiar girl, one of them, who came from a very peculiar family. Her mother wasn't a religious nut like the mother in Carrie. She was a game nut. A sweepstakes nut who subscribed to magazines for people who entered contests. The girl had one change of clothes for the entire school year and all the other kids made fun of her. 
I have a very clear memory of the day she came to school with a new outfit she bought herself. She was a plain-looking country girl, but she changed the black skirt and white blouse, which is all anybody had ever seen her in, for a bright-coloured checkered blouse with puffed sleeves and a skirt that was fashionable at the time, and everybody made worse fun of her because nobody wanted to see her change the mould. And I think that is reflected very, very clearly in this novel. Yeah. Effectively, Carrie White is most definitely a collaboration of those two yeah. particular elements, isn't she? She is. What I would say as an extension to that is, do you think, therefore, that... And it sort of feeds back into what we were saying about King being able to or not being able to write women. He talks about his own guilt at not being able to speak up in support of either of those two girls he went to school with. Yeah. Is he, therefore... Um, atoning. Atoning for that, and is Sue Snell... Him. Him. Yeah. A sort of a, a female, the female agent of his own atonement. Yeah, 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 that's a perfectly, I think, reasonable reading of Sue Snell. But does that therefore problematise well, the way he constructs women? <laughs> because Is he writing Sue Snell as a man and giving her a gender that's not his? Yeah, yeah, it's like, I'll write myself in here, give myself a female name. And I do think it's problematic, I do think he, he's very hit and miss sometimes, and I know we're not going to come on to talk about other books that I'm thinking of right now but I think I think it depends on the character and I think King writes what he knows so when we come on to lots of other books and we're going to talk about the alcoholic drug taking writer yes he writes what he is comfortable with what he is familiar with yeah and I think there is an element of that is he writing the female characters he knows in his life sometimes yeah yeah, I mean, there is an element of that. Uh, I mean, I do wonder, because, I mean, part of Neil's question, I think, was about, but if he can't write women, or if he's, you know, if he's more comfortable writing what he knows, then why start here? Uh, I think the, uh, the answer is that this was never intended to be, you know, published or, or published, to be honest. No, I mean, I think, again... With he threw it away because he didn't have an outlet for it. Yeah. Because he was used to work, he used to write for, you know, men's magazines like Cavalier. Yeah. And, and not only because of length, but I think because of content was one of the reasons he threw uh, was the reason he threw it away. Yeah, um, I mean, again, I'm going to quote from a, um, an article where he says that he was writing for Playboy and he was told, you can write macho men, but you can't write women. To which he said, I'm not scared of women, I can write women. And the, he wrote the shower scene and hated it. And threw it away and he he says his considered opinion was that he had written the world's all-time loser but his wife retrieved it from the bin encouraging him to finish the story yeah. so potentially this was never meant to come out into the world I, I, I don't think so or rather I certainly think that it was never intended to be the start of I mean I know that we talked about motifs that he's beginning to develop in this text and in that sense you can see that this is the beginning of something much larger but i think in a lot of ways this is like a false dawn of his body of work and this is one of the reasons why i think i view the shining as the beginning of his writing and i think he says something to that effect in the beginning or in his introduction to the shining in terms of this is where i sort of hit my stripes mm. because so much of, in terms of him being comfortable about what he knows, uh, writing about what he knows, Jack Torrance is exactly what you say, you know, the the alcoholic writer who also happens to be the, the father of young children who kind of wants to kill the little bastards at various <laughs> points. No, because, I mean, he tells <laughs> that right. story, doesn't he, yeah. in terms of 
because Joe Hill, I think, is quite proud of the fact that he claims you know, he was the inspiration for The Shining in the sense that he tells a story about coming home after a session at a bar or he come, came home anyway and found that Joe had written all over a manuscript of his. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I killed the bastard. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so I wonder whether the reason that when Neil asked why start here, I don't think it was ever the intention no. for Carrie to be his first novel. I'm not suggesting that it wouldn't have been published eventually. As the other three were. Yeah, but I don't think this was supposed to represent the start of a career that was going to be defined for its representation of, of women. It sort of demonstrated that I'm comfortable writing any, you know, anything. I think that. Yeah, I think it was an experiment that that didn't get out of hand because it's been incredibly successful. But I think in the first place, his initial starting point was this an experiment. Yeah in doing something which leads me on before we wrap up why do you think Carrie was successful is there a bit of Carrie in all of us is there something about Carrie and the revenge motif of that novel I mean, my, my personal opinion is Carrie isn't a hero and I'm, I'm not comfortable with Carrie as an anti-hero but I think there is a choice she makes at the black prom where she consciously says I'm going to get revenge and is there a bit of that in, in all of us? Everybody at some point has had bad things happen to them from another person. So is there something in there? I I think that whether it's because you are socially directed into the role or whether you are, you know, anybody who's read King's Fiction is either in high school or has been to high school. So what I would say is that we therefore have experience of the social hierarchy yeah. at high school. So what I would say is that uh, you are either aware of being directed into the loser quadrant of the hierarchy by your peers, or if you're, say, a Sue Snell or a Chris Hart, you sort of recognise yourself as as those people. I think that a lot of those people fear being viewed by everybody else, even if you are at the top of the hierarchy, as being the ultimate loser, sort of, sort of being... <sighs> you're aware that you're only one slip away from being directed that way. So I think the thing that you were talking earlier about King not liking the shower scene because he feared that he had created the ultimate loser, I think that that, at its very core, is what makes Carrie so successful. I think the fact that everybody recognises Carrie as the ultimate loser and the fact that they themselves have either been in that position or fear that they could have been... (laughs) I think that comes across in the text as well, at the prom, where they welcome her as one of them. Right yeah. up until the point that pig's blood drops, and while we know that the uh, ballot's rigged, uh, the, there is an element of she's being welcomed, she's the, the ugly duckling turned into the swan, and she is welcomed as a peer. It's almost a rebirth of Carrie yeah. at that point. So therefore, do you think there's a sort of, in a similar way to like Victor Hugo and the Feast of Fools in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, there's the sort of Bactinian notion of the, the king for the day, the, sort of, uh, the Bactinian notion of carnival, the idea yeah. that you know, the social hi- hierarchy almost gets flipped upside down. Yeah. But has to return to yes. normality. And that's where Chris and Billy come in with the, the, the pig's blood and turning everything back to back to black. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I think So where do you see this text? Do you see it as libertarian? Do you see this Carrie revenging herself on a culture and society which tries to limit her? And she deserves that? Or do you think that um the text is basically libertarian? That Carrie revenging herself on an, a culture and a society that has limited her and bullied her and treated her very badly all through her life 
Uh, do you think that's deserved? Or do you think alternately that she's, uh, the novel is fundamentally misogynist? That women, Carrie, Margaret, Sue, Chris, are evil, irrational, dangerous, and controlled by blood and emotion? Oh, well, you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> no, I think whether you can view Carrie as almost like a, a pioneer or, you know, a sacrificial figure in order to facilitate a change in the way that, uh, you know, in, I don't know, it's, this, there's the whole, the way that the 2013 film was marketed was, you know, you will know her name. So, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's almost like the ghost of Hamlet's father type, you know, mm. uh, I mean, I, the I, act of remembrance makes it. I, I think. I, I think that moment where she decides to get revenge changes my opinion of her. Right up until then, I sympathised with her. I felt sorry for her. There was. I, I. I wanted her to succeed. I wanted her to go to the prom and be the queen and yeah. have that swan moment. Yeah. And then at that point where she decided, she very visibly decides she smiles doesn't she she does yeah and at that point i changed my opinion of her completely and my, my sympathy stopped because she made a choice to do that and and how can you sympathize with somebody that will do something so evil as burn up the entire town the thing is i don't think it's, it's gendered in that way i don't think we're supposed to sympathize sympathise with anybody in that text at all and I think that's what marks it as a particularly noteworthy text I think you know it's almost like King's making a commentary on the nature of because it almost like that that conscious decision yes it stops us sympathising with her but it also humanises her to an extent so I, I don't know I don't know whether that says something about us sympathising with somebody because of her lack of humanity and that is what we're sympathising with. Or is it sympathising with her humanity because we've all been in a situation where we've thought, I wish I could do something about that. And she has, that was the point, wasn't she it? She has the guts to do something about that where we don't. Well, let me flip this question on its head. What do you think? Um, um, I think that it's very ambiguous. I think King's been quite clever. I think he's he leads us very cleverly by the nose to sympathise with Carrie to start with. We see that it's not her fault that she's grown up like that. We see it's Margaret White's fault. We see that everything has led up to this moment and I can rationally explain why she does it, but that doesn't change the fact that my sympathy for her ends. The thing is that I wonder whether you could say that, and maybe this plays into the issue people have about representation of, of women, is that Carrie is not supposed to function on a human level. She ha uh, she's more of a, a symbol of she only functions on a symbolic level in terms of she is the embodiment of of sin you know of her rather her sort of black prom sort of dark Cinderella self is an embodiment of Chris Harginson's sin of Sue Snell's implicit or implicity her own mother's sin uh, yeah 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 of Margaret White's sin definitely but yeah and and, and Sue Snell's implication within uh, Chris Harginson's sin and, and the sins of the female body of high school the fact that she only sort of functions on a symbolic level complicates things a little bit more, doesn't it? It does really, doesn't it? I was wondering about that dark Cinderella idea. Because I know Anne Williams, I think it's Anne Williams that talks about Carrie as a, a dark Cinderella. Yeah. 
and whether it's therefore complicated by the fact that she makes her own dress rather than... There's no fairy godmother figure. No, there isn't, no. I think, I think, it, I think it is a, a juxtaposition of the Cinderella and Ugly Duckling story. If we had a happy ending... Because Prince Charming dies. Yeah. The thing is, if you say if we had a happy ending, I kind of got the impression, I don't know about you, that the happy ending was never going to be possible. Oh, gosh, no, I think that's Harry foreshadowed. Harry has to die. Yeah, it's foreshadowed from the very beginning that this was all going to go very, very, very wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. The nature of her birth means that you've got the sense that it would be cyclical. Yeah. And that she would have to die. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that he's using this fairy tale structure right at the beginning of his career. He's, he's talking about things going on in American society. He's talking about individual differences and social adjustment and tolerance and intolerance. Already in a short book like Carrie, which is, when I've read it before today, three or four times, I've, I've read it very simply. I think he's complicating things and doing a lot of things that I haven't seen, especially with things like the fairy tale and the way the fairy tale was used before print to talk about things that happen in real life. So anyways, that, that wraps up Carrie uh, yes. for this month. Uh, thank you for listening. Next oh, yes, month, next month we're going to talk about Salem's Lot. Yes. Well, some of the motifs we've started to unpick here will no doubt be revisited. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with comments questions, anything you'd like to tell us, our Facebook is www.facebook.com forward slash Pennywise Dreadful. Um, our Twitter handle is at Pennywise Dread. Um, the website is www.pennywisedreadful.wordpress.com. And feel free to email us on pennywisedreadful at gmail.com. Thank you to Stephen Curtis for his excellent comments and conversation on blood. And thank you for listening.